Hi, and welcome to the Fourth U Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society. We're so glad to have you join us for our next installment of our monthly podcast. This month, I am so excited to get to sit down with a wonderful colleague and friend from seminary, the Reverend Jason Carson Wilson. We're going to be talking about some of the work that he's doing, but also the idea of seminary and the idea of what it means to study and do the work of theology. And I'm so excited for this conversation, so stay tuned. Jason, it's so good to sit down with you. Thank you. Great to be here. So we already had you join for an awesome In Conversation event. And folks, I recommend that you check that one out on YouTube if you haven't had the chance to yet. Um, and one of the things we got to mention the work that you were doing, but one of the things was that we didn't really get to dive into all the work that you were actually doing there. So you work with an organization and you actually, I believe, helped found the Bayard Rustin Liberation Initiative. Well, founded it. Yes, I'm yeah. the founding executive director. Yeah. So what it. exactly what exactly is that work like? Well, um, just kind of with a context on, on what prompted me to, to create it. Um, so I'm a, a black LGBTQ uh, faith leader committed to uh, policy advocacy to liberate both black and LGBTQI people and as well LGBTQI people of color. And what really prompted me to, to found the Baird Western Liberation Initiative is that I was seeing that there were um, LGBTQ organizations, traditional ones, that weren't focusing um, on the needs um, of LGBTQ people of color or were struggling with essentially seeing things through an intersectional lens. I mean, I think they've improved since then, but at the time I decided to uh, found the organization that wasn't the case. And so that that's driven me um, to start that work and continue the work. And so one of the uh, things that we've done, um, the, the, really the major focus is it's a national organization, BRLL is a national organization that focuses on uh, largely federal uh, advocacy around LGBTQ issues primarily, but um, also issues that affect LGBTQ people like issues that affect all humans like healthcare, uh, immigration, um, criminal justice. And so uh, the thing that really uh, brought me into the work was uh, joining with coalitions to, to get the Equality Act through the House in 2019 and obviously given uh, the what the Senate looks looked like in 2019, and also the um, presidential uh, administration that we had that didn't happen, and so uh, did that work. But have continued since then to to continue working with coalitions to get the Equality Act now through the House, and so now it's uh, given the the makeup and leadership of the Senate. It is got to the Senate, got to a March um, hearing in the Judiciary Committee. And so now it's still that push of trying to get it out of the Senate. Um, and so what did that work look like? It looked like um, participating in uh, 
member level meetings on Capitol Hill. It looked like doing work to mobilize people um, at the state, state and local level uh, to put pressure on their congressmen, their senators to uh, support this bill. And so had the great um, experience of being in the House gallery when they passed. Uh, and this was, of course, uh, when they got it through the House and, and, and it passed the House. So um, that was an amazing experience. Um, and so now we're still continuing to do that work. Some of the other work that, that we've done uh, has been focusing on the John Lewis Every Child Deserves a Family Act, which primarily uh, was brought forward to combat discrimination in uh, foster care and adoption against LGBTQI people, but given our uh, nation, which has some very uh, conservative individuals, that discrimination isn't just about LGBTQI people, it includes not uh, letting single women adopt, and as much as we can talk about you're not supposed to be uh, a racist, um, that still happens, so it protects against racial discrimination. Um, and that also uh, Christian quote-unquote adoption agencies that decide that they want to adopt to uh, people who aren't Christian or um, conservative evangelical uh, adoption agencies that have decided that they don't want to adopt to individuals who may be Catholic, for example. So th those are some of the work, that's some of the work uh, federally that we've, we've done Again, I also um, am heavily involved in a working group that, that continues to work on healthcare advocacy, which um, is a passion that I've had for years. When I first came to DC, I was working for the United Church of Christ uh, DC office as their Justice and Peace Policy Fellow. And at that time, I arrived in May of 2016 and worked there through 2018. And so if you... Uh, remember that time, that is right in the middle, that was the time at which the Republicans were trying to take down the Affordable Care Act in order to pay for the Trump tax cuts. And so uh, helping, working to save the Affordable Care Act was just a major focus. So I worked alongside a lot of uh, faith-based colleagues, specifically if anyone is familiar with uh, the Nuns on the Bus, or Network Catholic uh, Network, Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice. I worked alongside those colleagues in particular, but a large group, a large coalition. Um, who, but but I will say that Network really welcomed me into that work because they were leading it um, and allowed me to participate in various public actions. So I was doing a lot of uh, speeches on on at least the Capitol Hill grounds, um, and then participating in a lot of member level, staff level meetings on healthcare to get that through. And thankfully, um, hopefully my contribution helped us um, get to that uh, successful effort of being able to um, save the ACA. But I, I, I am thankful for that opportunity to have participated in that. And one of the things that um, that position also allowed me to do was give me a time to discern 
what I wanted to do after the fellowship, what I wanted my ministry to look like after that. And I realized as I was working, as that's where I was having these uh, this discernment and this reflection on wanting to have a ministry that was uh, focused on LGBTQ advocacy and then eventually looking at um, LGBTQ uh, advocacy for people of color within the LGBTQ community. And one of the opportunities that working at the UCC ended up providing me um, was being invited to a event called the Ethics of Reciprocity Conference in New York in October of 2017. And so I was one of two U.S. faith leaders among 11 from the, around the world who were invited to the United Nations to speak um, about the effects of discrimination, homophobia, violence against LGBTQI people around the world. And that just really um, energized me to do that work. And as I recall that um, experience, I was, the way it was set up was that we were, each faith leader was set at each table. Um, and so I, I sat there and I, I didn't really in interact with people uh, a lot before I, I spoke because I was so busy uh, outlining my speech. And so I, I outlined it and I got up and I, I started speaking and I, I, again, I hadn't written it out. Um, but my first line was, like Baird Rustin, I'm an angelic troublemaker. Um, and as I uh, gave the speech, came back and sat down, and once I was able to give the, uh, give the speech, I was able to sort of interact. And I, the man to my left, uh, I introduced myself to him first because he was the closest. He, uh, he is Max Hess, or was, uh, is Max Hess, but was the interim um, executive director of the Fellowship Reconciliation USA. And he said, he, he just started raving over my speech and said that he had uh, tweeted part of my speech on the official FOR Twitter feed while I was speaking, uh, which just knocked me over because the Fellowship for Reconciliation um, is where Baird Rustin got his start. He worked as an organizer with them starting in the late, either late 30s, early 40s, um, and worked with them until 1953, until uh, he had essentially was was caught in a compromising position in a car with two men and um, was arrested. And that forced him to leave, uh, or, well, FOR um, forced him out. Um, and so, uh, but it was just for me, that that experience for me of being in, in proximity of an organization that had given him a start was just um, an amazing experience. And so we had this uh, conversation and I was just like, you know, whatever I can do to connect with you, to work with your organization, that would be great, et cetera. 
and I still hadn't really come up with VRLI was still bubbling in my mind and, and I was I, I knew I wanted to create an organization but it was just didn't, didn't have the was still discerning and so uh, we had that interaction long story short I was invited to join their um, holding company so they sold their headquarters and invested the proceeds in uh, or investing the proceeds and so the holding company essentially um, the holding company essentially uh, invests that those proceeds to invest in uh, other other places so I, I started serving on that and then once I decided okay I'm definitely ready to um, found this organization I wasn't ready to do 501c3 so long story short after conversations and everything the fellowship reconciliation um, agreed to serve as my fiscal agent and still still serves to this day and I guess to so that's uh, that's kind of where kind of brings us to today one of the, the powerful things about your story and, and thinking through all that, and I think you kind of named it there, is is the power of coalition building and connection making and getting out there and talking with folks with making these efforts for for change in our society and our world. Like that's such a that's such a key element to building people power is we gotta be out there and we gotta be making these connections and we gotta be getting to know each other and we got to be building coalitions together. And I think that, you know, it's really amazing all the, all the work that you're doing. Political uh, advocacy work is not, you know, the easiest and it can often be some of the more demoralizing. Um, but, you know, it's awesome being able to see the wins that you, that you, you have accomplished and hopefully there'll be, there'll be more in the future um, that we can keep making uh, good trouble towards. So, for maybe some of the listeners who might not be familiar with Bayard Rustin, could you um, maybe give us a 411 on, on who exactly he is? Yeah, I think the um, he was a black gay um, civil rights uh, leader who you would, might know uh, most famously for helping organize the 1963 March on Washington, um, where of course, Dr. King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Um, and really, that's, for a lot of people, that's the only thing that, that they've known about him. However, um, once I heard about his story, I got just really, really um, enthralled. And so when I was at Chicago Theological Seminary. I, I um, was working on a paper for one of my classes. I can't remember which one. Um, and I decided that I wanted to do research on um, Baird Rustin and see what kind of LGBTQ advocacy he did during his life. And so because I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade, I was a journalist for nearly 20 years before I went into the, in the seminary, like I, uh, 
know how to go on uh, research rabbit holes and, and computers and uh, computer-aided reporting, as, as it was called at one point, and started doing all this, these searches, including finding his uh, an, an FBI file, because they'd kept a, an FBI file on him for years, ever since he started at, at FOR. In any case, this one FBI file was would have been from the like late 60s, maybe. It had his address on it, of course. And so I decided I would just uh, Google his address because I wanted to uh, wanted to get know more about him. So I decided I wanted to interview his partner. So I discovered his partner was still alive because there was a 40 year age difference. He had, once he um, dealt with this situation where he had been out, uh, sent away by FOR because of the arrest in 1953, there were some years there where he wasn't necessarily involved in, in the movement. Then uh, he was called down to, uh, called down by Dr. King, um, to help him with the Montgomery bus boycott. And so they began working together um, until, uh, and so once he'd, but I guess to, to, to back up again, once he was arrested, he said he'd been fully out. He'd been fully out, he'd had um, boyfriends, etc. And once that arrest happened, he decided that he would, as he put it, sublimate his um, sexual identity, therefore essentially uh, become celibate. Um, and so then he, again, to fast forward, worked with Dr. King, uh, my, the Montgomery Bus, bus Boycott, until uh, Adam Clayton Powell, uh, powerful New York Newark politician, threatened to accuse Dr. King and he of having uh, an affair. And so then he was dropped um, after that until Dr. King decided that he wanted to do the 1963 March on Washington. But uh, they knew the only person that was going to be able to organize that was Baird Rustin. So they, they brought him back. Um, and interestingly, though, this uh, had this would have would have been the second March on Washington he would have organized because he had also worked with um, labor leader uh, A. Philip Randolph in the late 40s during the F FDR administration. And they were planning to do a March on Washington um, until FDR said that if you cancel the march, I will sign a, an executive order that desegregates the government employees, the government. And so they canceled the march and, and, and he did that. So, uh, but then to, to jump back to 1963, so he organized the, the march um, and, and continued to work with, with Dr. King. And he actually, uh, after Dr. King left Memphis, the first time he went there, the first time there was a uh, the peaceful march. There was an issue there, and so 
it wasn't successful, so Dr. King left. Baird Rustin was was actually the one who asked him to return, and that's uh, sadly when uh, the assassination occurred. Um, so since then, um, I mean, in addition to you know civil rights uh, work, he also is very well known for um, international work. So he's done a lot of humanitarian work um, and did that through. Uh, the 40s as well, 40s, 50s, and into his, into the last days of his life as well, um, and actually was traveling over to India with the hoping to meet with Gandhi, but didn't get there before Gandhi was assassinated. But then did um, end up traveling there in 19 well in the late 40s. And speaking of, of Gandhi, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about Dr. King educating himself on uh, Gandhi and the nonviolent uh, philosophy. And that, frankly, and that's simply not true. He may have educated himself some, but Baird Rustin deserves the credit for having educated him. And Baird Rustin deserves having brought those philosophies uh, to him. Um, and really the reason that uh, Red Rustin was not given credit for helping educate Dr. King in that way, and the reason that he is not, hasn't been seen or heard as much as he should have been is frankly because he was gay. Um, and so that's one of the other reasons that I um, launched the Baird Rustin Liberation Initiative. Yes, the mission is the most important thing, but uh, raising up his name is as important to me. I, I'm trying to remember from, from seminary, it feels like so many years it was since uh, 2018 for me <laughs> um seems like forever ago with the pandemic but there was the baird rustin society that was also like a going on at the at chicago seminary i believe if i remember right yes and i actually found that so the the so the research i was doing when i was i was saying you know i had uh was doing uh research and found um his address and uh, went because I wanted to interview his partner. So I, um, so essentially what, what had happened was, is that, like I said, he um, had been essentially celibate and, and single for years until 1977. He met his partner who was 40 years his junior, and they were together for the last 10 years of his life, uh, of, of Bed Rustin's life. And um, so that would make him, well, he'll, he's going to be 70 next year. And so I decided I wanted to interview his partner. So I just Googled his partner's name and the address. And his partner is still living in the, in that apartment. So it could, because the address and the phone number popped up. So I decided, okay, we'll just see this. So I called him and had a short interview where he's, 
giving me information about the work that Brad Rustin did in the, in the last uh, years of his life. So he, he um, began in 84 working with uh, black and white men together um, and then ended up becoming, being named to a um, commission, a New York, New Jersey commission on HIV AIDS discrimination and would have uh, taken office had he not died three three weeks prior to um, taking office. So uh, after that conversation, I just was really, really had on my heart to found found the um, Bread Rustin Society. And so once I had that idea and planned an event. Um, he actually, I flew him in to be a keynote speaker at an event I had, I hosted at University Church in Hyde Park, which I'm still a member of. And so he was a keynote. We had a panel discussion, which included uh, Tamil Black, who just recently died. He was a walking historian from Chicago, a hundred and I think he was 103, just uh, just turned 103 just a while ago and before he died. Um, and so he was there, another, another friend of mine who I worked uh, a lot, Kim Hunt, who is a powerhouse uh, black lesbian woman that is all about fighting liberation. Um, and then another UCC colleague was there and then we screened Brother Outsider, a document, a documentary about Baird Rustin, um, and so have so had that chance to to connect with him, and then uh, hosted a so so that was so that event was um, what opened the door to the the Baird Rustin Society, and so it's still still in existence. So our shared connection is through Chicago Seminary, and in our in conversation event, we talk a lot about faith and how it informs activism and everything like that. And it sounds like, you know, seminary was a, a big part of your journey towards figuring out what exactly um, you wanted to do in terms of this kind of advocacy work that it kind of pointed you in that direction. Um, would, what was special about, about seminary for you? I think for me, it was the first time I could be all of myself. So I am from downstate Illinois um, or East, East Central Illinois, um, Champaign-Urbana. And so, and I'm 45 years old, so I was born in, in the mid seventies. So at that time it was more rural than it is now. And even though I was born in a um, university town um, unless you're on the university campus, it's pretty much rural. So I struggled with being born as a biracial uh, kid in a white family and essentially you know, being half white didn't really, didn't do a whole lot. I mean, I was still black. So I struggled with um, dealing with 
micro and macro aggressions from my own family. I was raised in a predominantly white conservative evangelical church that had levels of uh, micro and macro aggressions around race. Um, and that was even before I realized that I was, was gay. Um, I realized I was different at age six, um, thanks to the double mint twin boys. Um, oh, and Tom Selleck, like me some Magnum P.I. But anyway, um, I, I digress. Um, and so I was just struggling with, with those identities and then started hearing more and more what I knew to be homophobic sermons just after at six, just after at age six, realizing I was called to the ministry. Now I was in a church where boys were expected to be ministers and girls were expected to be ministers wives because you know uh, women apparently can't be in the pulpit but that's a whole nother topic we can discuss later anyway um i uh was really trying to trying to process like am i is this call am i answering the call of the church or am i answering the call of god but i realized as i'm walking to the to the um altar god calls me once and then i'm like i'm actually at six like am i hearing things and god is like yeah you heard me the first time and so did the did the preparations that our church had for that like um we had this little thing called seminarians where i learned how to use concordances and um uh, uh, commentaries and learn how to read the bible and learned how to write sermons so i was doing um, youth sundays from like nine to twelve doing Sunday, um, Sunday services at nursing homes. Um, but when I finally realized I was gay, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do ministry, or at least I, I, as I understood it, because I had this concept of like the only context in which Christianity exists was in the context of the church I was in, which, I mean, I was a child, so I understood, I understand now how that, was not necessarily uh, true. And so decided, oh, okay, I'm gonna you know, negotiate with God because that we all know that works. Um, and did my uh, journalism degree at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and was like, okay, I'm gonna use journalism as a ministry, which frankly, that ended up happening. I mean, there are ways, ways in which uh, God allowed that to happen. And I will say one of, the, and also, uh, he kept leaving breadcrumbs that would lead me to back to ministry. So one of my first stories at, at a paper I was working at was interviewing a UCC pastor who's talking to me about how gay people are allowed to attend church. And I was like, wait, wait, what? That's a thing. I didn't. I know you could do that, but didn't really want to acknowledge or believe that, and so that I had stayed away from church because the church that I was raised in eventually outed me, and so I um, had once I, I, you know, left home, I just didn't deal with church 
for a while until I ended up, um, well, yeah, for a while. And I was, I was at a, but my next, um, this was at my first job, one of my first jobs, my second job or another job. Anyway, I was working in a place called Pekin across the river from Peoria, Illinois. And there was a serial killer focusing on women of color, struggling with substance abuse, who were supporting their uh, substance abuse through sex work. He was focusing on them, uh, killing them, dumping them in the area that I worked. My colleague was doing, who was a police reporter, was just, oh, another woman has died, but I felt like they needed, their lives needed to mean something. Um, and so I started interviewing the families of the victims and doing these stories. And a couple, um, a lesbian couple, a lesbian clergy couple who were UCC pastors made it possible. They were, they had convened this group of sort of a support group of these victims' families. And so I interviewed them and did the stories. And so not only was I able to sort of do this social justice ministry within the context of my journalism work, but also then was given yet another reminder that, you know, you can be part of the of church and be gay. But not only that, you can also be a minister. But I was still being hard-headed, so I, you know, okay, that's, that's fine. So I, I did that. I ended up um, moving on to another um, newspaper and was interviewing the pastor and... It was specifically about LGBTQ stuff. And so we were interviewing him, and I, but I just had this feeling that I needed to ask him. So, I mean, he seemed really nice. So I was like, well, am I allowed to come to church since I'm gay? Or, or I didn't say that. I was like, can gay people come here? So he was like, yes. And so I started attending this UCC church, and they were starting the opening the affirming process for those that aren't aware. That's the process where uh, churches go through to, to officially declare that they're going to welcome LGBTQ people into their doors. So they did that, and I participated in one of their um, congregational discussions and really said, you know, this is explaining why it would, would be important for me for a church to declare they're open for me. So whether I had, whether it was because of me they did that, who knows? I don't know. I mean, it could be just, but in any case, they, they voted to become open and affirming, and I became... Uh, very active in their founding their um, LGBTQ ministry, etc. And then eventually I realized that I, uh, after leaving my last journalism job, after my uh, relationship imploded, and then relocating to uh, another apartment, I um, just kept feeling this call to ministry and knew I wanted to go to uh, a UCC seminary and knew I wanted it to be in Chicago because I, you know, I didn't know anything. So I, I really wish I could say that I did, did some sort of exhaustive research on seminaries, but 
Yeah, I know. It just involved me Googling the words UCC Seminary in Chicago. So, and uh, that popped up, and I uh, saw some of the descriptions of how they were, their commitment to at least LGBTQ issues. And so, applied um, and had, uh, I think, a phone interview, and then ended up being invited to tour CTS on the 13th of March. I remember that. And I met uh, Lisa Zook, and or she's since married now, and I can't remember her last name, but in any case, uh, Reverend, Reverend Zook, and uh, Ayana um, Uh, oh well, Ayana, um, Ayana Garrett. I was I know two Ayanas, and I was trying to figure out which one, Ayana Garrett. And um, it was just an amazing experience to be in this space where I just felt free to be me there. And so, long story short, obviously got accepted. And the pastor that I interviewed at for that newspaper job, um, or for, for that newspaper story that became my pastor when I started attending the church. We became good friends. He became, is, is still a good friend, um, became a mentor on my ordin ordination journey. And, and the reason, one of the reasons that September 3rd, 2013, the Tuesday that I walked into CTS is so memorable is because he and his wife, Sandy, his name is Donnelly Dutcher, Reverend Dr. Donnelly Dutcher and his wife, Sandy, drove me to Chicago and drove me to CTS and we walked through the door and uh, they both describe it as like taking their child, dropping their child off at college. And that was um, an amazing experience that, you know, began the amazing overall experience of being at CTS. I think for me, outside of obviously the um, theological education, I walked through those doors with this, with all the baggage of having been raised as a black child in around white people, um, working in an in an industry where. It was largely white, and I was the only black person in most of the newspapers I worked for. Even as much as I dealt with, well, still deal with racism, dealt with racism in those areas, I still, when I showed up at CTS, I had this idea that, this understanding that I was dealing with trying to process guilt from having what I will call white, white privilege by osmosis. That there were uh, many times that I was protected from challenges that many other black people um, didn't have to face simply because I was in proximity to whiteness. And so that was a struggle for me and, and um, ended up causing me to get to a point where I was beginning ministry, beginning to do ministry 
as a penance. Yes, I was called to the ministry, but it was really about, I mean, largely in the beginning was about this penance of um, the fact that I had, had enjoyed this white privilege by osmosis and how I needed to, to you know, um, just pay penance for that. Um, thankfully, I finally realized that one, you can't, you can't do ministry as penance. That's not an effective way to do ministry. Um, but it, even so, I mean, now that I've processed that and got past it, um, I'm in a space now where I at least let that inform the work that I do um, because I, I think it's not something that I, I should forget, but something that, that I should at least let inform how I approach um, the work toward liberation. That really resonates with me because I know in my experience as a, as a trans woman pursuing ordination and pursuing church work, that I, I've talked about it with a few people that you know, there was a sense that I had to be like this, the super religious one, that I had to go be ordained because like I have to prove everybody wrong that like, you know, they said that a trans woman can't be a Christian at all. I got to prove them wrong. I got to get ordained and like, I got to be the next level. So I understand the, the you got to un unpack that um, and leave that behind as your motivation for, for pursuing ministry because that's not healthy long-term motivation. So I, I definitely resonate with what you were saying, saying there. But I think one of the really beautiful things that you said uh, was about how you were able to come to CTS as a whole person. And I, that really uh, was my experience too, that I didn't have to uh, hide any part of me. And honestly, when I was interviewing at Fourth Universalist, it was one of the things that, that I really liked, that I didn't have to like hold any punches in an interview because they would be offended that I cared about justice work or something like that. And it was, a, it was a, the, those moments where you can be your whole self are so rewarding. I think it points to how theology can either be this thing that really can um, limit people that can tell us that we're worth less, that we're um, doomed and destined to hell. It can tell us that we're not uh, worthy of love, or it can be this experience where you engage theology and you engage it in a healthy way and you engage it in community building and can come out having these, these realities where you can feel that you truly are a whole person. Um, and that you can uh, have that place of belonging in that sense of belonging. Um, have you found um, that as you've continued doing theological work, does, is that something that helps motivate you to, to make sure that, that people have that same sense of belonging that you felt when you went to CTS? I, mean, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's what drives me as much as, I mean, yes, I'm doing policy work, but at the end of the day, it's policies, advocating for just policies is a way of creating space where everyone can live in peace and with dignity. And uh, working toward a day when we're not, you know, judged and dehumanized and demoralized for who we are, who we love, um, what we have, um, and so, yes, the, 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 the space and the time in which I was given to, to be myself 
without apology, I think is, is exactly what uh, my ministry's mission is. Jason, it's been so wonderful to get to sit down twice with you. Um, I've really enjoyed both of uh, these conversations that we've gotten to have. I wonder if people wanted to find a little bit about you or the work that you do online, uh, where would they where would they head to find that? Well, um, one way um, is visiting the Red Rustin Liberation uh, Initiative website at www.angelictroublemakers.org. Um, and then uh, I also serve as a uh, field support organizer for the Fellowship of Reconciliation USA. And so uh, to learn more about that work, um, they can visit forusa.org. And then because I you know, don't have enough to do, um, I also uh, work for the Chicago-based um, and UCC-affiliated uh, Community Renewal Society. Um, and I, I lead their LGBTQIA um, work there, which is more state and local focused. But BRLI actually connects them to federal policy advocacy work. Um, and so you can visit them at uh, www.communityrenewalsociety.org. And then, um, so yeah, so those are just uh, some ways, but you can find me on Twitter. And also I uh, write um, some things on, on Medium and so that you can look me up by name, uh, Reverend Jason Preston Wilson, or you can look me up. Um, the publication is politically pastoral. So those are just a few, few places you can find me. Don't worry folks, I'm going to have Jason uh, send me uh, all of these via email so that I can include these in the show notes um, so that you'll be nice, easily clickable links down below in the show notes. Um, but seriously, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to join us for the podcast today. Mm -hmm.